Would you turn with me, please, to the third chapter of Exodus? That's uh, in the Old Testament. As Walt uh, Kaiser says, that's the Old Testament. That's the part of your Bible that cracks when you uh, open it. Dried uh, rose petals fall out on the floor, pictures of the grandchildren. That's the part of the Bible that we don't read very much. I'd like to encourage you to read it. It's uh, part of Scripture. It's uh, the only Bible that Jesus had, as you know. It's the only Bible that the apostles had in their preaching. And it's the only Bible that the, uh, that the church had for about 20 to 30 years until the apostles began to write. But unfortunately, we don't read it much or study it much. Uh, we should. I'd like to commend it to you. And uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some portions of the Old Testament, seeing the same kind of things that you see in the New Testament, but perhaps in a different way from these Old Testament uh, texts. If you want to read ahead, next week we'll be uh, taking a look at the story of the three Hebrew children in Daniel 3. You'll be studying that passage in your growth groups, and then we'll talk about it uh, next Sunday morning. But for this morning, it's the story of the call of Moses in Exodus 3. Let me give you a little bit of background of this passage. As you know, Moses' life uh, can be divided into four periods of 40 years each. He spent 40 years in Egypt acquiring an education. I presume that he uh, learned court uh, protocol and court law and and, uh, administrative supervisory uh, skills that that equipped him for his leadership of Israel during the last 40-year period of his life. He was, as you know, Israel's chief executive, their king, as the Old Testament puts it, their leader. And I'm sure he must have acquired uh, some of his logistic and and administrative skills during this uh, first 40-year period of his life. As you know, he murdered an Egyptian, fled for his life into the wilderness, and he spent uh, the next 40 years of his life uh, in the Sinai Peninsula herding sheep for his father-in-law. That's double trouble right there. Uh, Herding sheep is uh, bad enough in itself, but working for your father-in-law may be even worse. But that was Moses' experience. And there he was acquiring an education, too. He learned things there that he could not learn in any other way. This was all equipment for the last 40 years of his life, which was spent uh, in leadership of the nation of Israel in their wanderings and encampments through the Sinai Peninsula. And as we pick up the story in chapter 3, we're midway between the second and third periods of his life. This is a transition chapter that takes us from the 40 years of sheep herding, shepherding, in Midian, in the backside of the desert, into his leadership of the nation of Israel. Verse 1, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's Sinai, uh, under another name. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Uh, The story begins with a talking bush. Now, I don't know about you, but I've I've never met a bush that talked. I've met shepherds who talk to bushes. You get awfully lonely out there. But uh, for myself, I have never come across a talking bush. Now, Moses lived in a pre-scientific era, and certainly he didn't know what we know about the laws of physics, but he was no fool. He knew that bushes don't talk, even back then. He had seen bushes ignited, I'm sure, by desert lightning storms, 
But uh, this one was not being consumed, and so he ambled over to take a closer look at this bush, and when he came with an earshot of the bush, it spoke to him. And not only did it speak to him, but it, it knew it, his name. Moses, Moses, the bush said. And I'm sure Moses uh, must have felt like some of the bass sheep herders who were there for months and months in the backcountry that it's time to retire and come in out of the sun. Uh, nevertheless, he listens to the bush. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, and Moses said, Here I am. Now this is the beginning of a long era of prophetism. That is, God singling out certain Jews to whom he spoke face to face. And these men became the mediators of God's revelation to his people. Moses was the first of a long line of prophets. But at this point, of course, Moses didn't know that. He didn't have Deuteronomy 18. He didn't write that for some time. He wasn't familiar with the, with the prophetic code. He, he didn't realize that God would speak to him face to face. All he, he could see was that this was a bush that was, that was speaking to him. And God said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now it begins to dawn upon Moses who this is that he's talking to. Because in the ancient world and particularly in the ancient Near East, to remove your sandals was a, it was a matter of culture. It's what you did when you came to a holy site, to a temple or some place that had been set aside for the, for the gods. And in this case, it was the God of Israel who spoke to Moses, told him to remove his sandals, and he was aware that he was in the presence of God. Then the Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and, and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Egyptians has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And up to this point, Egypt, uh, Moses is tracking well. He, he's, he's, he, he's delighted that God has seen the affliction of his people and he will deliver them, but he isn't prepared for what comes next. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. After that point, Moses was, uh, he was following. But at this point, the Lord loses him. You can understand why. Uh, I think if God had uh, commissioned Moses 40 years before, he would have felt adequate for the task. He was superbly trained to lead Israel through the, through the wilderness, to take them out of, of Egypt, and to provide them for them during their, uh, their trip into the Promised Land. But there's nothing like herding sheep for 40 years to make you feel sheepish and uh, <laughs> uncertain of yourselves. And, Moses had what we would call at this point an identity crisis. He didn't have the foggiest idea who he was or what he could do. And besides, the mission to which the Lord put him was an impossible mission. It's difficult to date Moses. He lived sometime in the middle of the 15th or the 14th century B.C. But at whatever date you place him from 1300 on, uh, he's, uh, he, he lived at a time when when Egypt was the dominant power in the Middle East and the pharaohs on the throne were the most powerful men in history. 
and to stand before these pharaohs at Karnak, this great palace complex there, something about the size of Bronco Stadium, and uh, to insist that, that, that these men release his people. Oh, it was just absurd, just absolutely absurd. And that's why Moses responds as he does. Who am I, he says, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the, the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid growing up, I had an enormous uh, problem with self-worth. It wasn't ego-crippling, but, but I just never did feel uh, that I could do anything very well. Uh, I don't know why. I had a very secure home. My parents loved me a lot, and uh, they provided all of the necessities and most of the amenities of life and, and really did surround me with a lot of love. They were, they were good parents. And I did reasonably well in school. Back then, when you were a kid, you didn't want to do real well. You didn't want to be labeled as an academia nut. But uh, I, you know, I, I passed. I got by. Uh, I, was, uh, I was involved in athletics. I kind of ran with the right bunch of kids. I, I had a very good life. And yet, somehow, I, I grew up thinking that I couldn't do anything very well. And that, that plagued me. Whenever I would talk to people, I rarely talked about it, but when I did, they would say, well, you just need to get to know yourself a little better. You get, need to get in touch with yourself. You have these assets, and you need to determine who you are and what you can do, and then you'll feel better about yourself. And I tried that, but it didn't work. I never could feel uh, good about myself. I didn't feel that I could do uh, things very, very well. Well, the whole thing... Uh, uh, went into crisis during the years that I was working with students back in the 60s. Uh, those were great years in, in many ways. Uh, that was when students, uh, university students, were taking the campuses apart and, and there were a lot of exciting things that were, that were going on. And since I was in the Bay Area, <clears throat> it was where most of the action originated. So those were great days, halcyon days. But they're also very, very scary frightening. There were powerful political, social forces that, that we couldn't understand. They were tearing the campuses apart. And uh, one day, feeling uh, very inadequate for the task, I went to talk to a very wise friend of mine and told him how I felt. His response to my problem was entirely different from anything I'd ever heard before. I told him how inadequate I felt, and he said, you, uh, you, you, you feel inadequate? Do you? I said, yes. He said, you really do feel inadequate? I said, oh, yeah, that's my problem. He said, you are. <laughs> that's one of those great moments of truth. You have a flash of insight. And it's really true. The coin dropped. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I was supposed, I was supposed to feel inadequate. Because I was. Now, a lot of people in the world who don't feel inadequate, and they should... And there are a lot of people who feel inadequate and don't know that they should, or that don't know that they should, rather. It's, uh, it's perfectly normal, because the problem is we are inadequate. And that's what, that's what Moses had to learn. Now notice the answer that, that God gives to Moses in verse 12. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt... Uh, you will worship God on this mountain. 
Now that's consistently God's answer to our feelings of, of uh, lack of, of self-worth. You'll notice that God does not, does not psychologize much with Moses. He doesn't delve into his past. He doesn't probe into his parentage. He doesn't talk to him much about, about his background. Uh, he, uh, he just says, I'll be with you. He doesn't itemize Moses' assets or liabilities. He doesn't tell him what he can do or what he can't do and, and counsel him to avoid the things that are difficult or impossible for him and to do the things that he does well. All he says is that I'm with you. And that's always the way God answers our, our lack of self-worth. He just tells us, doesn't matter who you are, I'll be with you. Now, in New Testament terminology, that's uh, precisely what Jesus was saying when he said to the disciples, I in you and you in me. It's a perfect union with him that gives us worth. See, we are valuable because God values us. We're precious because he sees us as precious. He cares about us. We can forgive ourselves for the past because we're forgiven. We can care about ourselves in a, in a very real sense because he loves us and he cares about us. That's always his answer. I, uh, I always like to refer people who struggle with self-worth to the statement that Jesus made to his disciples when they returned from one of their evangelistic missions. They came back excited about the fact that they had cast out demons. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, that's what gives us a sense of worth. It's not who we are. It's the fact that God knows us and God cares about us. If we have put ourselves into his hands, if we've identified with his son, Jesus Christ, then he indwells us and he's with us. He'll never forsake us. And we have value and worth and dignity and honor because he is with us. It has nothing to do with what we do or how successful we've been in business or in our family life, let's say. Uh, the father said to Jesus when he was baptized, after he came out of the water, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He hadn't cast out a demon. He hadn't healed a, a lame person. He hadn't raised anyone from the dead. He had done no mighty works. But the father said, this is my beloved son. He pleases me, see? That's where our value comes from. It doesn't make any difference how big we are or how small we are or what we look like in face or form, our intelligence, our background, our education, our experience. That's not where our value and worth comes from. It comes from the fact that God knows us and loves us and cares for us, and he's with us. Now, apparently that was all that Moses needed to know. God said, I'm with you. But it uh, wasn't enough for Moses. He uh, had another problem. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I, what shall I tell them? Follow the progression through here. Moses uh, is given this great commission, this impossible mission, and he says, Who am I that I should go? God says, Doesn't make any difference who you are. I'm with you. Moses said, That's fine, but who are you? That's the question. Who you take with you into a difficult situation is very, very important. Uh, a number of years ago, Carolyn and I were in another country, and uh, one evening we were in our hotel room without much to do, and I suggested that we go down to the, the old 
part of the city where the marketplace was and walk through the marketplace at night. And uh, Carolyn is almost always willing to, to go with me places like that, but she sort of gulped, and I think she felt a little bit uncomfortable. And uh, she looked at my skinny body, and she said, uh, who, who is going with us? <laughs> she said, do you suppose Howard and Ann could go with us? Now, uh, Howard and Ann were friends of ours that were accompanying us, and Howard grew up in Orange County in Southern California. And before he came, uh, became a Christian, he spent his life breaking up bars and beating people up. And uh, he is one uh, tough uh, kid. And that's why Carolyn said, uh, is Howard and Ann, are they going to go with us? And it's, all, it's very important who you take with you into situations like that. And that's, uh, that's the concern that Moses has here. Who, who are you? When I go back and people ask me who it is that has sent me, and they ask, what is his name, what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am. That's who I am. I am. Now, uh, there have been thousands of pages written on the name of God, most of which are technical and beyond uh, any of us. God's name, Jehovah, as most of us are used to hearing, or Yahweh, which seems to be the more correct uh, name, or the Lord, all in capital letters, as is translated in most of our modern translations, is really a, it's a verb form in, uh, in Hebrew. It's the third person singular of the verb to be. He is, is the name of God. Now, when Moses asks, what is your name? He was not asking specifically for the name of God. He knew God was known by that name, Yahweh, or he is, to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and the other patriarchs. He knew what God's name was, nor was he asking uh, uh, if God exists. Uh, many scholars, some scholars think that God is simply saying, I exist, and it should be translated that way. But Moses knew that God existed. He wasn't an atheist. He knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as, as the Lord uh, uh, reminds him earlier. So he knew that there was a God, and he knew the name of God. The interrogative pronoun that Moses uses, what is your name, uh, actually means what is the significance of your name. There are two interrogatives in, in Hebrew, one of which would mean what is your name, that is tell me your name. The other is what is the significance of your name. It's the second pronoun that's used. So what Moses is asking is what does it mean that you're going with me? What sort of God is this who accompanies me? What is the character of the Lord who is, who is with me? And God says, well, the significance of my name is, I am. I am. Now, what did he mean? Well, I think he means the same thing that Jesus means in the New Testament when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the door. In other words, whatever it is that you need, that's what I am. Do you need courage to stand before Pharaoh? I am your courage. Do you need patience with your uh, wife, uh, Zipporah, when you go back to Midian? And that's what I am. Do you need uh, wisdom to sort out all the problems with your children? Or the children of Israel later as you travel through the wilderness? That's what I am. Do you need uh, moral gumption to make decisions which are right but which will cost you dearly in terms of uh, the respect of your peers or they'll cost you financially? Then that's what I am. See? And it seems to me that the essence of Christian living is simply going through life saying, I can't, he can, therefore I can. And what's God asking you to do? What's he, 
How has he spoken to you through his word? What, what hard thing is he calling you to do? What, what difficult decision are you being called upon to make? And you say, just like I say, I can't. He says, I can. Therefore, we can. Humility in, the Christian, in Christian faith is not saying, I can do nothing. That's where we begin. Christ made that very clear. Without me, he said, you can do nothing. That's really true if you stop and think about it. We can't draw breath apart from God. We don't even exist apart from God. Paul was right when he quoted the pagan poet to the, to the uh, philosophers on Mars Hill. In him, that is in God, we live and move and have our being. We don't have any existence apart from God. And it's true that we can't be morally what God has called us to be apart from God. We can't do his will apart from God. And so uh, we have to go through life saying, I, 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 I'm nothing apart from God, but God is with me and therefore I'm everything. I'm nobody apart from God, but God is with me and therefore I'm somebody. I can't do it, but God is with me, therefore I can. And as Paul puts it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or as David puts it, by my God I can leap over a wall, by my God I can run through a troop. You can do whatever you have to do. Peter walked on the water. He didn't even know where the stones were. He actually walked on the water. Now, God is not going to call you to do that, I don't think. I think if he did, he would give you, I know if he did, he would give you the power to do it. But that's not really what he's asking us to do now. He's asking us to do some hard things morally, to make some decisions that are difficult. Perhaps it's to stick with your marriage. Perhaps it's to break up with someone that you know is, is doing harm to you morally and, and spiritually. Perhaps it's to go back and, and redress some, some evil that you've done that's hurt others that needs to be set right. And it'll cost you dearly, but you know it needs to be done. Perhaps it's to face some business humiliation, some terrible defeat in your business or home life or personal life and do it. By God's grace. You can do it. See? You can do it. I can't. He can. Therefore, I can. Now, uh, would that this were the end of the story, but uh, Moses has a number of problems. His first problem is an identity problem. He doesn't know who he is. His second problem is one of ignorance. He doesn't know who God is. His third problem is one of influence. As, as you would see if you read through the rest of this chapter, God... Uh, Tells him something of the future and what he'll do. And he has to go back and tell the elders that God has appeared to him. And Moses hangs up at that point and, and he says, But, chapter 4, verse 1, what, what, what if they won't believe me? Or listen to me and say the Lord did not speak to you. Now, now his problem is one of influence. He doesn't have the credentials. He doesn't have the, the background that these people will take seriously. He'll go back and he'll present himself as Israel's deliverer and they won't trust him. They won't believe him. How embarrassing. To pose as a leader of God's people and have no one want to follow. So it's a problem of influence. The Lord said to him, what's in your hand? A staff, he replied, his shepherd's stick, the implement of his vocation. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, it became a snake. And he ran from it. Then the Lord said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. By the way, did all of you know that, that Steve Newman killed a four-foot cobra in his backyard two weeks ago? I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> I know one thing. You don't grab cobras by the tail. Neither do you grab sidewinders or whatever this uh, snake was. 
So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. God said, that, that's so they'll believe that the Lord has appeared to you. Now, the, you see, this is the kind of thing that your education or your background or your wisdom uh, does not equip you for. There's no training that you could receive in Egypt that would equip you to, to turn staffs into snakes and vice versa. It doesn't happen that way. So Moses will be able to do things that cannot be explained in terms of his physical appearance or his education or his, or his natural strength. Uh, secondly, the Lord said, put your hand into your cloak. And, and when he took it out, it was leprous. No one had ever been cured of leprosy up to that point. Uh, Egypt was, was, in terms of medical knowledge, was the most advanced country in the world at that time. They were miles ahead of anyone else. But none of the medical schools in Egypt would, could, could teach you how to heal leprosy. Uh, this is something that couldn't be explained in terms of any education that Moses received in Egypt. Then the Lord said, if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may, may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Again, this is a miraculous sign. There was nothing in Moses' background that would equip him to do these sorts of miraculous things. The point is that God would vindicate him. He would authenticate him as a prophet by miraculous signs, things that could not be explained naturally. Now, I believe in context... We're talking about the signs that authenticated the prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself. And since I believe there are no prophets today as such, not any prophets that fit the, the specifications in Deuteronomy 18, uh, this passage does not directly apply to us. But I think what we can infer from this that God will authenticate us. Whatever task he sets us to, it's up to God to give us the credentials for it. And for myself, I think what mainly authenticates us is the change in character that is the result of knowing God. When we know God and we worship him and we walk with him, you begin to behave like a different person. You begin to look more like God himself. And that is what authenticates us. That's the miracle that God works today, the change in character. Uh, as Paul said to Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but be an example of the believer. In, in, in word, that is, in what you say, in your lifestyle, in the spirit that you exhibit, that is, the gracious, winsome, gentle, forthright spirit that, that Timothy was to exhibit as a result of his, of his knowledge of God. And in love, he said, and in purity. These things that cannot be explained merely in terms of one's education or background. I think that's how God authenticates us today. People will take us seriously. God is at work in our lives to change us. They see it. We're not talking about perfection. Again, we're talking about progress. When people see things happening in our lives, they begin to listen to us. Uh, Moses has another problem in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. Moses' first problem was uh, one of self-worth. His second problem was one of ignorance. His third is one of influence or impact upon others. Now his problem is one of a uh, sense of, of weakness and inadequacy that came from, from some 
physical affliction that he had. Most scholars are agreed. The, the term here, slow of speech and tongue, is an idiom. For some kind of speech impediment, Moses apparently stuttered or stammered or in some way found it very difficult to express himself. Um, and it was a humiliation to him. Can, can you imagine what it would be like to walk into, this, into the presence of the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and stammer out, let my people go? He felt that that disqualified him. Who could give leadership to uh, the people, to God's people through those years in the wilderness when he couldn't even articulate God's will to people. He couldn't express it clearly. Uh, when I was at Cal, I took a year of, uh, of Canaanite, the Canaanite language. It's a, really a very handy language to know you're running to Canaanites all the time. <laughs> but uh, I struggled through that thing for a year, and the only thing I remember out of it that did me any good was a little uh, tablet looked like a potato. And there were two lines of, of Canaanite inscribed on it. Apparently it was an offering that was left at the foot of an idol. They dug it out of a Baal temple. And uh, inscribed on this, uh, on this little tablet were the words, O Baal, cut through the backbone of my impediment. Relieve my humiliation. Something like that. Apparently this person had the same kind of speech impediment that Moses had. Some of the words were even very similar. And... Uh, and he was praying that Baal would relieve him of his affliction, take away his stammering. It suddenly dawned on me that Canaanites were real people. I mean, they were just honest, goodness, sure enough people, just like you and me with all the stresses and strains and struggles of life. And here was this poor man or woman who brings this prayer to Baal, please take away this stammering. Now, that's the kind of thing that we always pray when we have some impediment that we think frustrates God. We think, my, if I just were, you know, if I were a little more impressive in appearance, a little bigger or a little smaller or better educated, or better able to express myself. If I had a silver tongue, uh, I could, I could, God could use me so much more. My personality is not that great. If I just you know, had a little more humor, all sorts of things we think about ourselves that disqualify us. And so we pray, Lord, uh, uh, restore me in this area. Give me back this, this area of strength. But God doesn't operate that way. Notice his response to Moses. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Moses, who gave you that mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Who, who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, that deficiency is a divinely created deficiency. Given to him by God. So he'd count on God in those areas. Remember when Brian preached on 2 Corinthians 12 a few months back? He drew our attention to, to Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, some physical affliction for which he asked for relief three times. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul said, all right, I'll be content with my weakness because when I'm weak, I'm strong. Who matters? What does it matter if we're not very clear in what we say? If we, if we have to stammer it out, if we have to look uh, not, too, uh, not too sharp, it doesn't matter. You notice what he says? I'll help you speak. Literally, the text reads, I'll be with your mouth. And I'll teach you what to say. It doesn't say I'll teach you how to say it. I don't think God is that concerned about how we say it. What matters is what we say. God will teach us what to say. He'll give us the content. And even if you have to stammer it out, and if you have to repeat yourself, and it doesn't come out exactly like you want it to say, that's all right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All of our weaknesses, whatever they are, 
Our God-designed weaknesses so God can display his strength in us. Well, uh, Moses' response is uh, what mine would be probably at this point. Moses said, send somebody else. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it reads, send by the hand of whom you wilt. It's just an idiom for saying, send somebody else. I'm not going. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Isn't that interesting? When Moses felt inadequate, God didn't get uh, put out with him. When he was ignorant of God's character, that didn't annoy God. Uh, When he felt that he didn't have any influence on anyone, that didn't bother God. He was very understanding, very compassionate. He wasn't even concerned about what Moses perceived to be limitations in his life. That didn't bother God, didn't thwart him, didn't frustrate him. But when Moses said, I'm not going, that frustrated God because that's the only thing that ties his hands. That's the only problem that God can't overcome. If we say, I'm not available, send somebody else. Now, as you know, the story goes on to tell us that Moses went anyway because God, in his gracious way, will see to it that we do what he's called us to do. It may take a little longer, but he'll get us there. He'll get us to the right place at the right time. But for the time that we're saying, I I just cannot do it, I can't do it, our hands are tied, or his hands are tied. That's the only thing that keeps him from putting us to his intended use. As George MacDonald says, if he will carry us if we cannot walk, he will carry us until we can walk, but he will not carry us if we will not walk. He can't do anything. God could call down legions of angels to do his work if he pleased, but he's chosen to work through you and me. Weak, fallible instruments. That's his choice. And if we're not available... That ties his hands. I don't understand that. Why God has chosen to work in the manner in which he has. That's just the way it is. He wants to use us. Are we available? Are we willing to say, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll be whatever you want me to be, no matter what it, what it costs. I'm available, despite my weakness, my lack of education, my training, my experience, whatever it is. I'll do it. I can do it. Because I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Would you turn to Deuteronomy 33? Just one last word. Deuteronomy 33 is Moses' blessing uh, given to the 12 tribes. And uh, these are some of his last words before he died. Verse 13, concerning Joseph, who became the... That particular tribe became the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, of the twelve tribes of Israel. About Joseph, he said, May the Lord bless his land with the precious dew from from heaven above and with the deep waters that lie below, with the best the sun brings forth and the finest the, the moon can yield, with the choicest gifts of the ancient mountains and the fruitfulness of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness, And the favor of him who dwells in a bush. The uh, verb that's translated dwelt in the NIV is is actually a participle in the present tense. The God who dwells in a burning bush. That's the way Moses remembered God. When he thought of God, that's that's what always came back to him. He's the God who dwells in a bush. 
You know why God appeared to Moses in that bush? There are all sorts of ways that he could have appeared. The Old Testament is full of theophanies, appearances of God, God appearing as angels or men, appearing in brilliant, in splendor and in glory, at other times just as human men, but now he appears in the form of a bush. Why, I ask myself, why, why? Well, I think because he wants to make the point that any old bush will do as long as God indwells it. That's true of us. You yield up your humanity to his deity. Let him indwell your bush. Maybe it's just a, a desert scrub. Nevertheless, he's the God who dwells in, in bushes and he sets them on fire. All you have to do is make yourself available to him. Let's pray. Father, we do marvel that, that you would choose us when you could command angels that you could do it yourself so much better than we. We, uh, we thank you for making us a part of what you're doing, for bringing us alongside and, and giving us uh, your presence, not just your strength, not just your wisdom, but giving us yourself. We want to walk with you. We want to worship you. We want to know you and love you and, and be loved by you. And out of that relationship... Enjoy the sense of worth, sense of self-esteem that follows. We just thank you that we're very special to you and that you have a very special task for all of us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.